Welcome to my den and to this riveting episode that, heads up, may be difficult to listen to. By the end of this conversation, you'll have a new lens for how you view startup growth, war, and maybe even develop a reverence for worst-case thinking. You see, today's dialogue is with a legendary startup founder, Yuri Filipchuk, who at the time of recording on September 15, 2022, was actively in Kiev, Ukraine in the midst of war. His startup party space is highly intriguing, and you'll get to hear that in the episode. Today, we get to discuss everything from hiring people for your startup in an active war zone, the effect war has on employee motivation, and even the difficulty of separating good people from the nation attacking you and how that impacts both personal and professional decision-making. As a side note, Yuri's company Party.Space is in the middle of funding rounds. So if you're an angel investor listening and you're looking for incredibly resilient founders, reach out to Yuri. Also, if you're just a curious person who wants to see what the future of the microverse is in a metaverse events platform, go to party.space. You can even test out some of the microverse rooms that Yuri and his team are building. Now, without further ado, hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that and join me in my living room with the amazing Yuri Filipchuk. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a Native Digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. All right, Yuri, I I have to get us kicked off uh, just understanding like the situation <laughs> that, that you're in right now. I want to hear your story, all that jazz, but tell me like you're in the middle of it. So I guess we should probably mention the date of this recording because this is very untypical, but it's September 15th and you're in you're in Kiev right now, right? Mm, yes, I am in the capital of free people. Where were you before when back in February when the war started? So everything started here in Kiev for me. Uh, my dad called me and uh, I don't know whether you know it or not, but uh, your do not disturb mode on iPhone can be disrupted if somebody is calling you multiple times. That really saved me uh, a lot. <laughs> So I got called and uh, yeah, so Yuri, wake up, Russian tanks are heading towards Kharkiv, uh, probably also towards Kiev. Uh, let's meet outside of Kiev at my dad's house. And uh, I grabbed my girlfriend, we went there, uh, like crossing bridges was kind of really uh, of an experience because every moment you were thinking like okay what if a rocket strike and in the bridge right now like because everything seems so crazy and for the first eight days uh i've been at my dad's place in a basement 
with my family, with my girlfriend, with my semi-automatic rifle, uh, doing night shifts, uh, watching for our perimeter, and uh, hoping that none of invaders would try to enter our house. I can't even imagine. I... Oh my gosh. And then for the past, so I guess it's been seven months or eight, eight-ish months since the war started, right? So uh, 202 days or so. Wow. So just from, so I, I haven't spoken with someone who's been literally in the middle of the action. And so what's a message or uh, something, what's something I should know, someone who is just seeing the news headlines coming across that are, you know, somewhat, we're just, we're just getting the headlines. That's all we're getting, right? So like, from from your perspective, what's something, a message about the war or your experience or like what, what you're going through that you believe needs to be heard? So, you know, probably for me, the biggest uh Thing that I learned was that uh, bad things are happening uh, and pe- people they really feel they are coming so like in the case of Ukraine we had all the notifications and warnings from the intelligence agencies around the world uh, but the air in Kiev like two and three days before everything started really felt differently uh we headed for a walk just before the night uh when Russians invaded and that evening uh like I felt so nostalgic about everything around me. Uh so that's why when I read about the Carl Jung's uh notions about the Second World War, about that like the stories of people who felt that coming, uh Somehow, I really, uh, now I believe a lot more in stories like that. So, first of all, trust your gut. A lot of people warned me and suggested that I should leave. Actually, I returned in Ukraine from L.A. before the war to work out the contingency actions for my team. Uh, And uh, to be honest, I wasn't treating them so seriously. I was like, okay, so this is kind of a checklist for our investors to be sure that everything's going to be fine. But when the stuff went out of control, uh, everything really felt differently. So you definitely cannot prepare yourself for anything like that. Living like a prepper uh, is not the way, mostly for majority of people. but the mental gymnastics and uh, the stuff that will help you stay calm uh, is a very is a highly valuable skill in such situations. Thank you for that. And what I'm hearing you say, and correct me if I if I heard this incorrectly, but it sounds like if you had gone back, you would have heeded more of the warnings, <laughs> like actually watched what was happening in you know, the unrest, the the warning signs, and then he did those more than just kind of brushing them off? Is that is that what you have learned? Uh, yes. So the worst case scenario is the real case scenario. And wow. uh, I, th- I think like now in planning, I always uh, lean toward the worst case scenario more. 
even despite like being optimistic for founder, the number one <laughs> requirement to keep rolling. I think that's such that is such a an important perspective that I feel like, you know, speaking of native digitals here, there's this interesting thing that I I see happening in my generation where it's it's almost like a juxtaposition where you have native digitals who are so ingrained with tech, right? We're seeing everything that's happening in the world. And there's this tendency to be extremely fearful because of that, right? Like all the issues, the bad things, whether it's, you know, war, shootings, economies collapsing, um, you know, climate change, like there's this tendency to have anxiety or fear about that. However, you have the other side of the equation, which is Gen Zers in America and in many countries around the world have never experienced what your country is going through right now. We have no concept. I have no concept of what it's like to be in a war zone and have, you know, people close to you that you're watching either fight or try to run businesses in the middle of a war. Like, we have no concept of that. And so there's this tendency, even though we're, you know, somewhat fearful or anxious about the world as a whole or our future, we also have very little real connection with the actual tragedy that could come or or the actual hardship of what a war brings. So there's this disconnect from history. So I'm really curious to get your thoughts as someone who, you know, clearly you've lived in the US, <laughs> you've lived in Ukraine, you're in the middle of the war right now. What would you say to Gen Zers, like the next generation that's going to have to fight if, you know, my country, for example, broke out into civil war, which is not at all improbable. I mean, talking about warning signs, we have the warning signs, right? Like the warning signs are here that America is probably going to enter, um, uh, you know, who knows, a war in in the near future. We're coming up to, um, you know, there's the statistics about every empire lasts about 250 years. And in 2026, we hit our 250 year mark. Not, not, you know, obviously, I can't see the future. But speaking about warning signs, I'm really curious to get your perspective. What would you say to young people who are not prepared for the reality that is war? Oh, so that was a great question. And as all great questions, it has the answer in itself. So if you really conceive the chance of dark ages, starting again, uh, then probably you should be ready for them. Uh, like Rome collapsed and probably people saw that coming. Uh, were they prepared? Probably not. Uh, so I think it's a new normal to be ready for stuff that wa- wasn't really perceived as something something potentially possible 20 or 30 years ago. So I really hope that uh, we're going to jump and jump through and skip all those dark times uh, without a lot of human tragedy. But the history is always spiraling out uh, just at the different levels. So yeah, it's Oh, brace yourselves and uh, get ready for something uncomfortable. Uh, and I think that also would help. And may- maybe Gen Z's with their mindset, they are even more open to 
be really prepared for stuff like that than millennials or boomers. Uh, I think Gen Zs, uh, they have a wider uh, worldview. Uh, even despite people say they are locked in digital world, uh, I think still the perspective they are having is much wider. That's why they might be readier for the situation. I hope so, but who you know? Who knows? I I wanted to, you know, ask you as someone who's lit. Did you grow up in Ukraine or did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, so you when did you move to the U.S. for the first time? Uh, j- just before the war. So I started living in U.S. in December last year. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, I moved in L.A. Uh, and then returned before the war to develop uh, plans and develop <laughs> my team and get stuck here. Uh, but I think I think it's it, it would be even harder for me to stay outside of Ukraine and hear what's happening with my family, with my friends, with my team. Pro- probably I would still return because uh, a lot of friends of mine who are living in state, uh, they probably they probably ended up having a lot more uh, psychological damage from the situation because the distance is, you know, this the lens and effect of distance is working against them. When you're inside, uh, it's, uh, it's really one of the insights we received uh, from the war that... Uh, you keep doing the ordinary things, uh, even despite hearing the artillery shelling or fighters uh, flying over the <laughs> the village. But you keep doing the routine in the same way, and really nothing is different. So, uh, and in the months, uh, like almost like. The, the moment we pushed Russians uh, back from Kiev, the moment they started withdrawing and they got stuck, so it's a month and months and a half. After that, uh, it was a real shock for everyone that uh, you have to keep living. And uh, to keep living, you, you actually have to put some effort in it. So you have to distance yourself from the doom scrolling and following the conflict, and you have returned to your normal life. Otherwise, it's why. Why are those people fighting for you if you just sit day and night looking through the news and not doing anything helpful? So, really, a lot of interesting emotions, insights. uh, That was a very profound (laughs) experience in some way uh, for those who who are not on the front line, but for those who try to volunteer to help Etc. That's uh, that was diff- different, definitely interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I I really believe in just me personally and anyone else who is outside of the situation. Being able to hear you say like it, it for one, it's encouraging to hear you say like people are trying to continue their lives ordinarily, just as they would you know normally go about it, but they're still this, you know, obviously looming danger, looming 
looming presence around. And it makes me want to ask, like, when you were a kid growing up in Ukraine, was there always this expectation of someday Russia's going to do something? Like, is there an expectation? Or was this, do you think for most kids or most people in Ukraine, this was sort of sudden? Mm, that's a great question again. So uh, I was growing up in 90s. And in 90s, Russia wasn't perceived as the real enemy. Uh, everything changed in 2007 when we had the first uh, revolution, the first real democratic revolution. And uh, Ukraine started leaning towards the West, toward the European Union. Uh, then Russia became like a questionable partner uh, and we had a lot of tension uh, but for real like the war is ongoing for eight years so it started not in February it started in 2014 and uh, my co-founders uh, Arthur and Mitter they are from Donetsk and Tugansk region and uh, they left their homes on the last train that was evacuating people from that region. And when the war started again, because they moved in Kiev, and then it's here again, uh, I was closely following their advice because they said, like, okay, we've been through this once, and uh, you have no options to just sit and follow the situation. You got to move out. You got to start packing. And uh, they... They really see that the war started eight years ago. And probably uh, now the generation is really born against Russia. So people uh, people are really so damaged by the situation that uh, even for me, it's hard to speak with my friends with Russian roots. Uh, I know they are good people. Uh, most of them left Russia a long time ago. Uh, but still, uh, you know this feeling in your throat when you speak to that person and that tremble in your voice uh, is appearing. So and a lot of people lost relatives, friends, families. So Ukraine got traumatized by Russia and new generation would treat them as an enemy for a long time. So when you say a, a tremble in, in your throat or like or hesitation when you speak to friends with Russian roots, what's what's the root of that? Uh, you know, it's, it's probably because you either feel or you don't feel or you try to evaluate where you should feel hatred towards the person you're speaking to. And you, you are just trying to normalize that situation in your inner dialogue is so and is is like crazily leaning towards different emotions. That's why you you're really confused. It makes a lot of sense and I, I had no clue the conversation would go this route, but it brings to mind something that's happening in America, which is, you know, in America there's a huge conversation around racism. But I always keep coming back to this question of, 
is some of the the concern or the underlying emotion, like you described, from those sentiments, is that actually founded in something real? You know, in, in y'all's case with Ukraine and with Russia, I would imagine, just based on friends I have who are Russian and Ukrainian, you look very similar, right? You come from a shared heritage in a lot of ways. Like it, it seems like there's a lot of of sh- shared culture. You know, like there, there's there's less similarity or less, excuse me, less difference than say the look between a white person and a black person. And yet, in your case, I I can say 100%. I think most people in America who would say we're avidly opposed to racism would say, in this particular case. Like with with, you know, you guys experiencing this right now that that I don't even know the proper way to phrase this, but hopefully my sentiment is coming across that it's not racism. It's simply a fear that grows out of a foundation with an actual reason for experiencing that emotion. Right. Because like even if I understood correctly what you were sharing, someone who has Russian roots, even if they do not identify with anything that the Russians are, you know, imposing on Ukraine, they don't identify with the war, that person still has a deep connection to Russia. Could you, you just, you never know who you can trust is kind of the sentiment that I'm hearing from you. Maybe that's incorrect. Correct me if I'm wrong, but. Uh, mm, so first of all, let's divide it in two parts. Uh, and let's begin with the second. Uh, so it's not about the trust. It's about the separating the person from, you know, the picture of the country that made uh, a huge mistake by underestimating Ukraine, by thinking that they can invade uh, an independent country in 21st century. So a lot of stuff like there. Uh, but it's really hard now to separate one person from the nation. And uh, I never thought it, it's going to be that hard, you know. Uh, I think like, uh, oh, I'm an educated person. I have a lot of friends. I communicate a lot. So why why should I struggle with that? But that's kind of like on a very instant level. It's a very primitive, somewhere inside you. And uh, the biggest challenge is that you cannot uh, properly describe this feeling you have inside towards the person. And uh, but I don't know whether it's really good comparing the situation with the racism. So, uh, but I keep following some Russian media outlets, Russian propaganda telegram channels, and uh, it's very important for me to sometimes open the comments section and see what ordinary ordinary people are saying there. Yeah, there are a lot of bots, there are a lot of trolls, but still you can manage to feel the notion of what's going on. And uh, like, uh, I don't know whether you are knowing the guy, uh, Camille, uh, Camille Guleyev, he, he has a really good Twitter account with a lot of threads on uh, the situation. He's actually from Russia. Uh, he's uh, from the Volga region, uh, from the minority of uh, Tatars there. And uh, he says that the root of the Russian identity, of the roots of 
Russian uh, perception towards Ukraine uh, was uh, really describing it two trash movies about uh, they're called Brat 1 and Brat, Brat 2 uh, like a Brother 1 and 2 uh, a, a story about the guy who returned from the Chechen war uh, and he tried saving his brother from some troubles and in in the second movie he went to US and he faced there the Ukrainian mafia and uh, he he had a lot of conflict with them and he actually won uh, saying a lot about like oh you you're gonna answer us for the Sevastopol for taking the Crimea from Russia Russia so you are the Bandarids the pro-Ukrainian uh, radicals so some kind of this conflict was in deeply inside the DNA of Russian culture code. And uh, now is the time for that to show off. Thank you for that perspective, Yuri. I, first of all, want to say I appreciate you bringing bringing to light the fact, number one, I would just want to pull out some things you said. Number one, you're still, like you said, watching commentary and all that from ordinary Russian people, right? It's it's like you're you're bridging that. I don't I don't even know if you call it bridging a gap, bridging an information gap, maybe an understanding what seems to be at least from my perspective. And again, you know that's a whole lot better than me. But it seems like the Russian government has an agenda that the Russian people may or may not be aware of, the war propaganda, all of that, right? So there's good Russian people, is what I'm hearing you say. And sometimes, oh, I, I, I see in your <laughs> face, tell tell me, correct me if I'm wrong. So good Russian people is the meme right now, which is really... Uh, this term of good Russians is really being challenged right now uh, with all the Russian liberals and all the people uh, who we thought are opposing the Russian president and regime. Uh, We thought of them as of good Russians, but sometimes and uh, probably even in many cases right now, when people are digging deeper in what they used to be saying, what they said between the lines and what they did, uh, that they are also kind of imperialistic. And uh, I cannot say that all Russians are bad, but uh, you know this social social dynamics and uh, they are just crazy. And we just live in a very interesting time. And I think like uh, we got to stop with this part about Russia. Uh, first of all, because I start feeling uncomfortably physically, I don't know why. I still, you know, I try to dig inside my thoughts, my feelings, but I feel really un- uncomfortable uh, discussing this for a while. Uh, I am taking my position of uh, closely monitoring the situation, uh, trying to figure out like what's going to be next, and. Uh, how how we should live uh, with this in the future. Uh, but 
that was more than enough, <laughs> probably. I sense the mixed emotions coming through, and that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation, <laughs> Yuri, and this honest conversation, because you can sense my ignorance just having seen headlines. I mean, and that's what I love about what you're sharing. Like, I am learning so much through this conversation because it, I have no, I have no concept, no comparison of what it's like to have that sort of dynamic you were just describing between, like, I, I love, I haven't even thought about this fact that many Ukrainians might have an emo, little, literally an emotional or physical reaction to the presence of someone who even has roots in Russia. Like that, that is something I have no concept of experiencing. So I so appreciate you sharing that honestly, because more people all over the world listen to this show. It's not just in America, but I feel like especially in America, the UK, you know, countries that seem, again, I use air quotes to say, like we seemingly feel more distant. Maybe it's the physical separation. Maybe it's the fact that we have, none of my generation has ever been in a war on our soil. It is so difficult to comprehend what you're describing. And uh, part, yeah, go ahead. May I just interrupt you on this part? So I just remember then on the third or fourth week of war, uh, I was just monitoring the Reddit, all the YouTube bloggers uh, putting their content and putting their perspective of the situation. And I really get so disappointed with the fact that, okay, I'm here inside. I know how the situation is going on. But when I read some random Joe on Reddit describing that from his perspective, I I really decided to doubt all the information I see and hear online. And uh, I used to read a lot on Reddit, all, all the discussions on different topics, but those people are so far away from what's really going on on ground. Uh, I think this, uh, I, I don't know whether it's a sort of a digital information uh, hygiene or not, but now I doubt a lot more on what I'm hearing online. And uh, that's why probably I'm trying to put this perspective for you uh, about the situation. Thank you for that. So needed. So needed. So I want to shift gears into talking about your company, but just one more question about, about this whole situation. I'm just curious, when you're living in the midst of this, what's the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning? Mm. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a great question. So uh, first of all, you are probably not waking up in the bed you are used to waking up. And the, when you open your eyes and you see yourself in like, in the place you, you shouldn't be there, uh, uh, you start building the picture of what's going on. And uh, the, first, the first urge is to take your phone and check all the news. And uh, that's a very damaging and disastrous routine uh, in this situation. So distancing yourself from news uh, is really helpful. And uh, probably this feeling that you 
that you are still dreaming is more than real. Uh, you, you challenge the reality a lot more waking up uh, during the war. Wow. I can imagine how difficult it is to resist checking the news. I mean, that's the first thing I do too. And I'm not even in the middle of, of what you're going through. So thank you for sharing that perspective. Um, okay. So now I, I, this, this is mind boggling to me that I know you were talking about, you're trying to continue ordinary life like most people are, but it is still mind boggling to me that you're able to be a startup founder and not just a startup founder, you're also raising money for your startup in the middle of all of this. What, just walk me through, what is that experience like? And yeah, what's the experience like of being a startup founder in the middle of a war? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, like, uh, I think uh, being a startup founder is really puts you in a situation where you're almost in the midst of war every day. Otherwise, you're not treating your startup and company seriously. So I started my company, Party Space, two years ago. And uh, since then, every day was full of challenges. And... uh, at the Ukrainian company, so we we have to beat a lot, probably a little bit more resistance than companies that are closer to their clients. So you have to let your partners know that you are not the Eastern European barbarian who's drinking vodka uh, during Zoom calls, etc. So you have to work with stereotypes. You also need to prove you are trustworthy. And- Wait, I just have to I have to interrupt you there. Is that seriously a stereotype that exists? Uh, about vodka, so pe- people joke a lot about vodka. Probably they are not that serious, uh, but still, uh, you you feel that you have to add a little bit more credibility to yourself than your peers, uh, simply just because you are from the very interesting part of the world. So like, when you're raising money, you're talking about when you're in front of. VC funds or whatever from other countries you're having to overcome that stereotype? Uh, both with venture capitalists, with clients. So our first client was a huge Swedish company. And uh, one of the first questions they started uh, researching on really a lot uh, was, okay, and where do you have your servers? Where do you store your code where are your developers are they safe uh what is the risk that somebody from your company won't be able to something that was before the war so and now uh during the war uh people also were really concerned about uh us being able to operate properly and to work properly if it's any sort of sense of hope, I was talking with a VC the other day who just backed a company at the beginning of COVID. These guys were from, oh gosh, I want to say it was Portugal, 
They were from Portugal, and this was right when the lockdowns were happening, and, you know, America wasn't letting anybody in the country. Well, these two startup founders believed in their their vision, their product so much that instead of just, so they tried to fly, of course, Portugal directly into the U.S. to go meet with folks in Silicon Valley, but because they couldn't <clears throat> they couldn't get into the U.S. that way, they flew into Mexico and then took a like took a truck, like hit in a truck to get across the border to get up to Silicon Valley. When they got to Silicon Valley, they slept in like wherever they could find, just like talking to people on the street, asking about how they could meet investors. Well, someone got word of this in, in, in Silicon Valley, one of the VC funds, and was like, if these guys are going to go through this absolute nightmare to get here because that's how much they believe in their product and want it funded, then I'm going to back them. <laughs> like it was just, you know, they didn't care what the product was. The VCs were like, I want to back these guys, whatever they're doing. So who knows? May- maybe this will be an advantage for you guys. I hope it'll be an advantage, but it- <laughs> that story was really interesting to me. Yeah, that's a great story. So I, I think like the- it's really an advantage for us already. So yeah, let's go through the situation. First of all, uh, at the beginning of war, so we, we paid people all the salaries, a lot of money we could just to support them. We also paid a lot of crypto because uh, we were not sure that Ukrainian banks could work out everything. And uh, we supported people. Uh, our lawyer was uh, on 24-7, so we were given guides, advises like what to do next, where you should go, where you shouldn't go. Uh, and for the first months of war, uh, really the operational level fell to, I don't know, the very bottom. So people were just uh, doing some routine tasks, but it wasn't the startup crush, the level of productivity you want from your startup team. And uh, after two months of war or so, uh, so in April, uh, in early May, uh, we saw a huge spike in productivity. So people got tired. Uh, A lot of team members returned to their homes. They said like, no way, I want to go home. I want to work from home. I don't want to be anywhere else. And uh, I still see that... uh, People are uh, working a lot more and more productively than probably before the war. So uh, it really connected all of us together. Uh, Before the conflict, we had an offline office in Kiev, and we used to hang out there for a lot, and uh, it felt like a home. When when we got distributed because of the conflict, uh, we moved all the internal meetings online. Uh, this was a common practice, so we worked like three uh, three days from home and two days from office. So that was the healthy split, I think. But now we, we are uh, remote first, and we should be at the company that's working with the remote companies. Uh, and uh, the level of productivity is only increasing. And... Uh, it was even hard to onboard new people whom we hired after, uh, you know, everything broke out. So some some team members uh, really got burnt out and uh, they left the team. Uh, some people 
who went through this uh, and ended with a better shape. They kept grinding at the higher pace, and uh, it's even yeah, it's even hard to onboard some people who didn't went through all the situation with us. But I think it's a great moment of the real corporate culture being born. Uh, now we have this core uh, and this core of 30 people. So we, we are not a small company. So we are ready for scale. Uh, we are ready for all the challenges. And you said you brought on 10 people this year during the war, right? Yeah, yeah. We we, we, we hired uh, maybe even more. Uh, I haven't even checked. Uh, like, uh, I, I really trust my operations. <laughs> uh, manager on uh, count, managing the headcount and seeing how many people we have. But yeah, we, we hired more than 10 people. And uh, right now is a very good moment to hire. I can imagine. Fact, yeah, no, no, like uh, it may sound some predatory, but a lot of Ukrainian companies failed to keep the top talent. They cannot right. keep with the salaries or with the pace with anything else. And we we are cherry picking the best people on the market. Uh, and also, some companies they really fail to work remotely. So uh, we are fine to hire people from different uh, places around the world. And uh, I see this as a competitive advantage. And by the way, we helped three of our Rush developers in Russia. We had some people from Russia and we worked with them to leave Russia and they relocated to Turkey and Croatia. So, wow. Uh, That's incredible. And, and I can also see just from the nature of what you're building with with party space i've you know you showed me you you brought me into some of the party spaces and i can imagine just with this idea of being inside you call them microverses right yeah okay. yeah microverses. So you got microverses and they're and they're you know you have folks who are 2d inside of them so they're, they're not avatars but i could see as we were talking about yesterday this bridge that you guys are creating with bringing natively analog companies or leaders or team members into this microverse space can be, I'm sure is a really compelling sort of exciting thing for potential developers or employees of party space to think, oh my gosh, we're, we're essentially creating the future of what meetings look like meetings, events, et cetera. Like I could see that being super compelling to native digitals too. Uh, th thank you. First of all, I, I love your feedback and the way you're looking at things. Uh, so this multi-generation dialogue, uh, the concept that our friend David Krillman introduced to me is really interesting. And uh, I started thinking of my Gen Zs from a different perspective in my team. Uh, yeah, and as part of space, so we started in... 2020 with the goal of gamifying video chat. And my co-founders are game dev developers. They were building games for 20 years. They've launched some good titles with millions in audience. 
and uh, we started from gamification but uh i'm as a salesperson identified a client and they, their need to hold the virtual event for a large musical startup which i am not allowed to name out loud and uh, that client said so we want to host our end of year party virtually we all of us as we are from Sweden, we are huge fans of Second Life. Uh, we also uh, won't be installing any software, so you want we want you to put that product in a browser. Uh, we don't want to buy any VR headsets, so maybe maybe you can add the traditional video chatting to the platform. So what about a Frankenstein of in-browser 3D with video chat? And we're going to pay you a lot if you deliver that successfully. That was the challenge we really loud. Uh, we hired six people in two weeks, six engineers, uh, because before that we only had my co-founders as a technical part of the team. So we hired six people and uh, not even hired. Some of them were working during weekends and after their uh, real work uh, to create the platform our client wanted. And when we delivered the final experience, the average session length on their end of year party was 132 minutes. So imagine you and your coworkers spending more than two hours together on a virtual event that is first not mandatory, is second uh, is celebratory. Yeah. That's it's incredible. That's how it started. Thank you. And uh, that was the moment when we focused on 3D. We started creating the platform rather than this custom experience. And uh, since then, uh, we worked out a lot of clients, but probably so the most noticeable was the first event for a tech startup. And okay, that worked for a tech company. Uh, then it worked for another tech company and for another. Okay, that's great. But what if we have a client that's not a tech company? Uh, would they enjoy it? And immediately, uh, the universe brought us the another Swedish company. They are building trucks. It, the company is called Scania. Yeah, we, we are allowed to name them. And they said, we want the internal conference for a thousand HRs. For a thousand people involved in human resources, L&D, and uh, I can tell you that you probably know that HRs are not the most tech-savvy and they are not often the digital, digital people. So it was a huge challenge for us. And uh, the event was another success. And that was the moment when we clearly saw, okay, we are building something that going to be huge. I love that. And when you showed me inside of a party space yesterday, and since this is purely audio, I can only hope to describe it, but it's like you almost walk into a replication of an event space, you know, but it's inside of a, it's digital, right? So 
you walk in, but there's still, and this is what I found so interesting because we were, we were chatting about this yesterday. I found this so interesting that your clients, after they started experiencing these spaces where they could interact with people and they could be in a, you know, small group settings around a little table and they could only hear their peers talking, you know, not the, not every single HR person in the, you know, in the room of a thousand talking, which is pretty cool. Um, but what I found interesting is your clients started asking for things that are in the real world, right? Like chairs and seats and tables. And and I find that fascinating as a native digital because one of my qualms with what currently exists with the metaverse, what the things that Gen Z just doesn't resonate with, is that so many companies are trying to recreate what's in the real world when the only reason we have certain items like chairs in the real world is because you need them in the real world, but you don't need them in in a digital world. So what I find so fascinating about what you're doing is, is to me, as a native digital, it's almost like you're creating the bridge for native analogs to become used to a native digital experience, right? So it's not too much of of a leap from my perspective, being inside of one of your microverses, it's not too much of a leap for me to say, I'm going to join what I'm going to join a somewhat zoom meeting, right? Like something that I can just join, like I would a zoom, a zoom call where I'm in 2d, where it's my real face. And I'm going to explore a microverse and see my colleagues faces. But instead of being at an actual conference in person, I'm in a micro experience, I can sit down at a virtual table uh, on a virtual chair, and with six other colleagues, and I can hear their conversations. But I'm not having to physically travel, jump on an airplane. I'm also not having to make the natively digital leap, which is to become an avatar or a different digital personality. So would you say, like, I'm just curious to ask this as we wrap up here, have you seen that folks who are natively analog, you know, over the age of 35, who don't, who don't have a a natural digital world around them, would you say that you're getting positive versus like, what's, what's been the feedback from those folks when they come into a party space? Uh, So they, they, they are uh, the customers we love most because uh it's really hard to impress digital people with the 3d product in the browser but for analog people that's like a huge leap forward and uh we see that they they are so impressed and uh they probably love our product even more than the digital first people and i think that's great so we have found our niche and uh, we we work with lawyers, with engineering companies, with telecom industry, and those people are really enjoying what we have. And uh, what also I wanted to add, so uh, we are now uh, recording the audio, but we see each other. And uh, how often are you looking at yourself during this call? Hanna, what do you think? Oh, looking at myself on this call? Yeah. Um, not not very frequently. Uh, I can prove you wrong. So if we install the eye tracking software, that would clearly indicate that you are constantly looking at yourself during the call. Really? Uh, 
subconsciously. So automatically you're doing that. And I think this is the biggest problem with Zoom fatigue that uh, our monkey brain is not used to seeing itself in the mirror for six, for eight hours a day. Uh, that's probably we have, we, we really get tired of that. Uh, you know, when you look at yourself, you have the strange thoughts and the the, the most, uh, the, the number one advice to people uh, tripping on psychedelics is not to look into the mirror. Why? Because the moment you see yourself, you are literally getting in a, not the best situation. So in party space, because of the 3D environment around you, we are forcing you to look outside. You see, you can find yourself in a very small uh, circle, but still, you you are monitoring the landscape, and that's why I think we elevate this suffering of Zoom fatigue on our events. That's incredible. That's something I've I have literally never considered that that possibly the Zoom fatigue could be coming from looking at yourself instead of at those around you or environments around you. You're laser focused on on one thing fascinating if yeah if that comes out as research or whatever send it to me i'm i'm very intrigued by by that concept i know we're coming to the end of our time here yuri so i i cannot thank you enough for this authentic conversation about your perspective oh my gosh like this my mind has been opened i am excited to see others minds opened from this. And I just, I, I thank you for everything that you're doing. Um, I, I want to say I am so inspired by not just what you're going through, like the common human experience of what Ukrainians are going through, but the fact that as a startup founder, you're not letting even something as incredibly impactful as a war, like the the most impactful thing you could possibly experience as a human affect this vision that you have going forward with Party Space. Like that is so inspirational for me as a fellow startup founder. So thank you for bringing that today. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, it was really my honor and pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we can keep talking with you regularly, not, not on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed the way you look and perceive the world around you and those questions were great so it really was very inspiring for me too and since uh i will be back to united states really soon uh i hope i can find more like-minded people uh like you during my trip there thank you absolutely virtual fist bump (laughs) (laughs) thanks my friend thank you Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) 